episode 19, Eyes and Ears In, Hands Out. Today, I am speaking with Bina Egensberger about hospital trustee boards. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I am speaking with Bina Egensberger, who is a hospital trustee in her home state of Montana, also in the Western region and nationally. She's got a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on. Prior to this conversation that I had with, with Bina, I will freely admit that I had a very shaky understanding about hospital trustee boards, including who is on them and their exact role. I also failed to consider how the trustees themselves might be affected by the reverberations of the Affordable Care Act. Bina straightens me out today. In case you didn't know, my name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to the program this morning, Bina. Glad to be here. I came to realize during one of our earlier conversations that I have a lot to learn about the governance of hospitals. So before we get into your sundry roles, could you just explain what the trustee of a hospital is and does? Just like corporations have boards of directors to ensure the financial success of of, of the corporations they serve, nonprofit hospitals and, and actually some for-profits have boards of trustees to direct the organization. The board's usually comprised of community members and some clinical leaders. While the responsibilities vary from organization to organization, some of the key responsibilities are to protect the financial assets of the hospital and to monitor quality and patient safety. An important distinction is to understand that the role of the hospital is to govern, not manage the organization. We like to say eyes and ears in, but hands out. Uh, we work at setting strategic direction and goals, but not with the day-to-day -day operations. Our only employee is the CEO, so hiring and evaluating a CEO who is so key to the organization's success is kind of another important task. The American Hospital Association estimates there are about 60,000 hospital and health system trustees in the country, and they're on system boards and subsidiary boards that have fiduciary responsibilities and some don't, and then on, in freestanding hospitals like my own. The average board size is about 13, although I've seen some behemoths that are 40 plus, and there are a lot of uh, county-run hospitals that just have five trustees that run them. So that's in general a picture of what trustees do. I guess, and I suppose in hindsight, I shouldn't have been surprised, but it's just surprised me that the trustee boards were comprised of non-medical professionals. We, we are representing the owners of the community. We're not treating patients. <laughs> Trust me, you don't want us to meet you in the <laughs> ER. But, but we're representing the community's best interest and, and looking at the where the hospital wants to be and how to direct that. We work in tandem with the administration. So we work as a team with the administration to set that policy and put us in a direction of what, where we want to go. 
I mean, it really makes sense because just because someone has a medical degree, I mean, there's two separate skill sets that we're talking about here. One is medicine and the other is really is business. And as you had mentioned, the viability of the of the institution. We do have physicians on our board and the um, administrative key staff usually sits in on, on any hospital board meeting. There's been a big drive to get more nurses on boards. But the, the, the basic premise is that they're, this is made of community members. Now that you have educated us on what a trustee is and what a trustee board does, could you just explain the sundry boards you serve on? Because there are a few. <laughs> there are a few. I'm a little busy with healthcare. I am a trustee first and foremost for my own local board here, Clark Park Valley Hospital. We're a critical access hospital in, in rural Montana. I also sit on the Montana Hospital Association board, which which helps hospitals in Montana kind of direct the policy and, and where we're going. Uh, I am currently chairing the Committee on Governance, and the Committee on Governance is an advisory board for the American Hospital Association. And then I also work with the Western Regional Trustee Symposium. I'm the Montana representative, and the, the Trustee Symposium puts on an education event every year for, for trustees. And so, that, that is actually how we were brought together. Shout out to John Borton, who uh, introduced me to you. Gotta love John. (laughs) (laughs) So just so that we make John happy, could you talk a little bit about the the symposium that the Western Regional Trustee Symposium? The state hospital associations in the Rocky Mountain region decided that if they worked together, they might be able to provide a better education event than they could individually. So if you're thinking about a map and you think about the Rocky Mountain region, you'd, you'd start at the top with Montana. I always like to put Montana at the top, of course. But, but kind of following down Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona are all from that same region. Uh, Nebraska thought it was a great idea and joined in. And now we've recently added North and South Dakota. So most of the state hospital associations provide a staff member, usually the person who handles education events. And the um, states also have a trustee representative like myself. And as you might guess, the staff does most of the heavy lifting for the event. They contract for the venue and the speakers and they handle the sponsors and registration and marketing. And the trustees primarily help with setting the event agenda. I believe we're the only region in the country that's doing this in a cooperative way, and it's really proven successful. It it moves from state to state each year so that trustees can have a shot at attending the first first class event that's relatively near where they live. It's been a great event, and it's been very successful for us. Could I ask you, when you say the symposium is successful, why you know, what, what's kind of the criteria there? I guess I'm, I'm just kind of trying to understand, you know, a trustee goes to this symposium. It, is it just the idea of collaboration that you can talk amongst yourselves relative to how to make your hospital more viable? Or is there specific nuggets that you're pulling away? The symposium tries to find those hot education topics that trustees, trustees are really struggling with. So right now we are considering what we are going to have speakers talk on during the, during the event. So the hot topics seem to be transitional governance models, 
physician integration, population health management. Trustees are really struggling with how, how we do that. And community benefit. How do we use that tool in the best way? The focus of that meeting is not only to give trustees education, but to also find some time so that they can learn from each other. We always have a, uh, a breakfast or lunch meeting where we have table topics. We will put out certain topics and trustees can sit wherever they want and try to learn from each other. What are you doing in your hospital that helps you with this? And what are you doing in your hospital? And that's been a, a very successful part of the, of the symposium. One of the things that you said really struck me as important, the hot topics for this year. So you had mentioned population health management, transitional. Transitional governance. Governance. What is that? So, so hospitals right now are moving from a space between volume and value. So we are going from a system that was driven by volume reimbursement to one that will be driven by value what we get paid for is how well we'll be able to take care of, of patients. And, and most hospitals are kind of in that spot with one foot on the dock and one in, on the boat in that we are still being paid on volume, but we are transitioning to value. And if you, if you jump too soon, uh, you miss a lot of reimbursement that you could be paid. And if you jump too late, you'll be, you'll be behind. Obamacare has changed a lot of things. And the governance part has really changed because a lot of these hospitals are merging and finding new alliances and struggling then with, with how you work on that part of, of governance. So our, our hot topics this year, population health management, transitional governance. Thank you for explaining that. That's really interesting. And um, you said technology integration as well? Uh, physician integration. Physician integration. So, okay. uh, a, a lot of physicians uh, used to be in freestanding clinics, and a lot of hospitals have integrated them into their hospitals. But now we need to work with physicians and give them a leadership role. And a lot of physicians were never trained on on leadership. They were trained on the very technical aspects of, of the clinical side of their practices. And sometimes we are shuffling them into positions and saying, well, here, manage this. And uh, we need to find ways to, so that it's win-win for both the hospitals and the physicians and to work as a team. And that's, that's, a, that's a challenge for, for lots of hospitals and lots of physicians. And was there a fourth hot topic or are those the three Let's see, what else did we talk? Oh, c a community benefit is something that, you know, is more than just a form that we fill out for the IRS every year. So hospitals are looking at how, how we do that. Population health management is also another big issue because we're all going to have to do this management of the population much better, that management of their health. And hospitals are only one part of that wheel. There's a lot of different things that go into a healthy population, inclu including housing for populations and all, all kinds of things. So hospitals have to learn how to work with other social agencies so that we can coordinate and bring better services to our patients. And now, how is that different from community benefit? The community benefit is a, 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 a report that is that we have to fill out every year. Every hospital does any, any nonprofit hospital for the IRS. And it talks about since we are tax exempt, we have to explain in this report what benefit we bring to the community. So we have to outline what we are bringing to the community in, in, in terms both financially and socially and 
and how that works. And it's uh, some hospitals are doing that much better than others and using that as a tool to really springboard into population health and look at how we can look at our population better and do a better job of handling that. It sounds like some of the programs that you that a hospital might be doing to improve population health management would be exactly what would be written up in this community benefit report. Sure, sure, absolutely. Okay, just want to make sure that I understand because I do <laughs> feel like this is very important information, Bina. Any anybody can look at anybody's those those are filed with the IRS and they're public knowledge. So you could look at the community benefit for your hospital wherever you are and see what they are doing and giving back to the community. A, a big chunk of that, of course, is unreimbursed care and that we give to patients. But there are other programs that we include that how we work with patients and, and do different things. No kidding. So it sounds like if someone is interested in working with a hospital or collaborating with them in some way, a great way to find out information about what they care about or what's important to them would be to look at that report. Absolutely. So we have learned some actionable information here this morning. Could you talk a little bit about maybe what makes an effective hospital board? That's an interesting question. And a lot of things go into making an effective hospital board. And there's plenty of tools out there that help boards measure and improve their effectiveness. We've seen a real transformation in governance over the years. Many years ago, boards were mostly comprised of people who had made uh, significant financial donations to the hospital. And their, their role was more as figureheads, sort of the frosting on the cake. And that's evolved tremendously today because boards are now seeking members with very specific skill sets and competencies to lead their hospitals. The ideal board, I think, has a culture that's strategic oriented, that's accountable, and that's committed to continuous learning about not only about governance, but about healthcare quality issues. The best boards give a lot of really careful thought to recruitment and membership. They, they usually use a competency matrix to look at board composition, and they find the right structures for their organization, what kind of committees and how those committees are going to work together. They define roles and accountability and, and work at having really effective meetings so that the boards aren't just sitting there and listening to report, but, but participating in an active discussion. Boards need to find that right balance between inside and oversight. I, I talked about eyes and ears in and hands out, and that's, that's kind of a hard line to travel sometimes. But the ideal board kind of develops a great board culture, and it encourages a robust discussion and a commitment to high standards. And they have uh, members who are engaged to furthering their education around not only the industry, but, but around particularly quality healthcare measures. Richard Chait talked about three modes of governance. There's fiduciary, strategic, and generative governance. And just about all boards do the fiduciary part pretty well. They're protecting the assets, they're overseeing the operations, deploying resources, kind of crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And most boards, I think, have, have done pretty well in, in the strategic mode. So they focus on strategy. They have strategic planning sessions. They kind of get everybody on the same page and, and try to move from 
where they are now to where they want to be to. But the, the last mode is generative, and this is where boards can really add value to the organization. And generative governance is about framing the issues and kind of finding the question behind the question, reshaping how we view issues, assessing whether the strategic fit of the mission and vision is what is correct by looking at things from the patient perspective. Uh, you, ha you have to look, and that's where we talked about that we are representing those patients. So we have to kind of challenge pivotal assumptions with some constructive skepticism, and uh, that's when boards can, can really add value to an organization. I was on a blue ribbon panel a couple of years ago that looked at governance in this transformation type era, and they uh, did a survey with CEOs and, and also with trustees, but one of the, my, my favorite remark was from one of the CEOs, and he said when he was a, a young CEO, he saw the board as a necessary evil, and I think a lot of CEOs kind of have that, that view of the board, but he said he, that he had changed his view, and he said his best experiences are when it was just him and the board talking and exchanging views, and they asked him what he was worried about, and whether he'd considered various issues and various angles of the issue, and he said he'd really grown through those interactions. So that's what generative governance is about, a, a CEO and an exec team working with the board and having that robust discussion to find the right solution and strategies for hospitals. So there's three areas that a board participates in, fiduciary, strategic planning, and then this generative governance. So that's basically a very macro, if I'm just kind of restating what you just said, it's kind of looking at things from a very macro level. So in other words, evaluating even the, the higher level strategic plan to make sure that it is best serving the community, the patients in the community. Yeah, kind of re-looking at things through the patient's eyes. And um, sometimes when you get a board, particularly if the board is all very similar, it's important to have a very diverse board because you get this group think and sometimes you lose track of the patient and it's important to keep that patient uppermost as we, as we look at things. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it also just goes back to, and there's a lot of research that's been done that says that a well-functioning team is much smarter than even the smartest individual. And it's the diversity that really makes it, makes that happen. One thing that's been happening is that, that we've been seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So you have asset aggregation, you have competing hospitals bringing their assets under one umbrella. Sometimes what they do is they they get a very large board with representational governance. So they say, we're going to take some trustees from your board and some trustees from this other board and some trustees from this other board, and then we'll have a, have a great board. And um, that's kind of the opposite of what they should do because what they, what they really should do is to be sitting down and really plotting out what are the competencies they need from a board to take the new organization that's made up of these different former organizations, uh, how to take that in the strategic direction they want to go? And you need a board that's broad enough to have those competencies, yet small enough to have effective conversations in the boardroom and small enough to make decisions in a timely manner because things are not moving slower, that's for sure. There has to be clarity about the mission and vision and the roles each board will have. And it's it's not an easy task. And there's a lot of struggling around there out that, about that. I could really see that one of the dangers, which you alluded to before, is that the the board becomes 
for all intents and purposes, a figurehead. And I, I, I could see that that would happen more regularly if the board is too big to really be actionable. Like there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Well, because you can't have a good discussion with with 40 members or even 20 members because uh, people will wait and not participate in the discussion because there's not enough time to for one. Uh, You know, I I think an ideal board, uh, we we have about 11 members in our board and and I think that works pretty well. Uh, You're usually missing one or two because of of some kind of prior commitment and but but these really huge mega boards they do most of their work in the committees and then the the committees are able to have some robust discussion but and I think an effective board really needs to be a little smaller but that's my personal opinion I would say that that's probably borne out in almost any meeting capacity there's just there's a certain critical mass that you obviously need to achieve but if you if it becomes too large, there's an ideal midpoint there that you, you kind of got to hit, right? Right. This year, 2014, what, what are some of the quality issues that, that you're seeing or that you're seeing trustee boards wrestling with? My CEO knows that my key imperative is always going to be around patient quality and safety. And I think it's the most important role that board members have. It's not always easy, as we talked about, for a board made of lay lay people. Like our board is pretty typical. We've got a grocery store owner, a banker, a school superintendent, a rancher. I'm a newspaper publisher. We have one community member with some healthcare expertise around technology, and we brought in some outside members who have healthcare expertise and two physicians. But the bulk of our board, like many boards across the country, are lay people. We need to understand our hospital's performance around issues like adverse drug events, medication errors, patient falls, unplanned return admissions, and uh, the core measures for pneumonia and myocardial infarctions, if they are being met or if they are not being met. Uh, At Clark Fork Valley Hospital, we have a dashboard where we track a number of these measures over time, and it's published on our website. So when things are not pretty, you can bet there's going to be a discussion about it at the board meeting. It, w- it was interesting to me in um, in 2005, the, the Institute of, for Healthcare had their 100,000 Lives campaign, and they focused around six measures of quality to save lives. And they built on that success two years later and had their 5 million lives platform. And it had six more measures, and five of them were clinical, you know, like redu- reducing pressure ulcers and reducing reducing. MRSA. But the last one was getting boards on board, defining and spreading the best processes for hospital boards so that they could be more effective in accelerating that progress towards safe care. And IHA felt it was critical for healthcare boards to thoroughly understand and measure that quality and help save lives. That's kind of some of the things that that we look at. You asked about specific issues, and readmission is a big one because Medicare is hoping to see its costs reduced. And although critical hospitals are exempt, there's financial penalties now for hospitals that underperform in controlling unplanned readmissions. So it's important not only for patient well-being, but for the well-being of the hospital bottom line to prevent readmissions. Injuries from falls is something that many hospitals struggle with. It's important for patients to have mobility 
because if you reduce the mobility in patients, they it can cause loss of muscle strength. You can have pressure ulcers if they're on bed rest. They can have embolisms and functional decline. But of course, if they're mobile, then then there's a, a chance for falls. So the, there's goals set around decreasing the number of falls, but maintaining that patient mobility, and that's that's a challenge. Another issue that's been um, kind of hot nationwide is about around healthcare disparities, because about a third of the U.S. population is of certain ethnic races, and it's important that our hospitals be prepared to provide equitable care for everyone who walks through their our doors and understand how to help those patients receive the best treatment. What I'm noticing about the things that you've mentioned is that they do all seem to be driven by either government quality standards or reimbursement. You know, so, for example, readmission, obviously, that's a big reimbursement concern. Injuries from falls, I mean, that's a zero event. That's something that obviously you want to definitely keep an eye on. And I, in you know, the MRSA and M, you know, MI, that's, I think those are NCQA standards. So would you say that most of the things, like that the way that a board starts to consider what quality aspects they're going to focus on kind of starts with either government or CMS um, derived quality standards or reimbursement concerns? Is that kind of your starting place where you start to figure out what to do or are you starting someplace else? There are lots of resources out there that show us it's it's not just about reimbursement because it's about providing excellent quality patient care. And there are processes that when they are done effectively and done the right way every time, reduce patient harm and improve the quality of care. And ironically, at the same time, they reduce costs. There are lots of those measures that are out there I think it's important for boards to to not try to do everything all at once, but to focus on five or six measures. If they're not, I, I, I would hope everybody is is already monitoring quality. That would that would just scare me senseless if they weren't. But if 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 they start their focus on certain quality measures, and then you 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 kind of keep keep those and then expand. And if it's uppermost, then it's it's at at the at the top, at the leadership level, where it comes from the board and it filters through to the administration, then it filters on down that that we're going to focus on quality and we're, we're going to provide our patients with the best possible care. This is the part that's hard for trustees because we really have to do our little work because we are lay people and we have to understand what those reports mean and how our hospitals can improve quality and patient safety. If I understand this correctly, kind of how how this works at a really high level is that the trustees find themselves in possession with quality reports. And then you guys kind of talk amongst yourselves and you figure out what five or six quality standards or, or quality initiatives that you would like to focus on. Is it a yearly thing? You know, like you pick five or six a year or do you do it quarterly? We look at our standards every month. So we, oh. we meet we meet monthly. And uh, we have a, a dashboard of standards. So we look to see whether all of the, the, the core measures were met for a patient who had 
presents with a a cardiac event. We look to see that all the core measures were met with a patient who has pneumonia. We track the number of patient falls. We track the number of medical errors. We look at all of these things and uh, we have a color chart so it makes it easy. Most things are green and they go along and if all of a sudden we have a a large number of falls, that's going to shoot up to red and then there's going to be a discussion about what happened here and how is the hospital addressing it and how will they improve it. For example, uh, one time recently we had a number of medical errors. It was the same patient, just this one error got repeated a number of times. So they looked back and looked at the processes and found out where there was a error in the process around patient medication and fixed that. So it's a, it's about the board examining those and kind of holding, holding the administration's feet to the fire around quality issues. And, and that might be a really good example of the, the uh, motto that you had said before, which is eyes and ears in, hands out. So you guys look at your dashboard, so your eyes and ears are in, you're listening, you realize there's an issue, but then you go to the CEO and you say, look, you got to deal with this. Well, the CEO, the CEO and the board deal with it together. The CEO is, uh, we, we would never go to the medical staff and say, why did you take care of this patient? Why, why was there this medical error? That's, that's not our role. But we want to make sure that we are asking the CEO, do we, do we have the right processes in place? What are you, you know, there's been a jump in medical errors or there's been a jump in patient falls. What are you doing to address that issue? That's kind of the role. You agreed on some dashboard which features metrics that the the board is very interested in monitoring, and then you meet on a monthly basis to ensure that you're within acceptable ranges, if you will. And if you're not, then you have conversations with the the CEO or the the hospital administration relative to what is the action plan going to be. Um, yeah. Most boards have a, you know, our board is pretty small. Um, A lot of larger boards will have a quality committee that meets and goes over these types of things. And then also looks at the bigger quality picture, you know, what are are we doing to improve quality and, and how are we addressing that? So... And that might be why the, the symposium or, or getting together with other boards is also kind of important because, you know, if you've got a quality committee or probably even more so if you don't, it would be important for you to talk to, you know, to, to kind of get some education around what are maybe emerging quality issues or how are people addressing common challenges the symposium is a great place to learn about quality issues. Uh, Every every hospital needs a quality committee. Ours happens to be the committee of the whole because we feel it's important enough to be dressed at every board meeting. But every every, every hospital needs a quality committee. As a a uh, patient or a provider or other stakeholder in the in the healthcare continuum, you know, what what should we really know or understand about the board of, of a hospital? It, is that is the trustee board of a hospital relevant to, you know, me on the ground floor of the hospital in in, in some way I should be apprised of? I, th- I think it's important to understand that we're part of the team. 
And while boards sometimes hold the feet of the administration to the fire, uh, particularly around quality issues, we are not the boogeyman. And I think in a lot of hospitals, the, the board, I'm using it in, in quotes, is kind of a scary thing. But we're part of that team. And hospitals are going through some very challenging times as we switch from volume to value. And we're all working towards that triple aim. We want to reduce costs. We want to improve the patient experience. And we want to protect our patients from harm and in, in increase quality. And the trustees are there to re represent the owners, our communities and to really challenge our hospitals to really be the best that we can be. That, I think, is what you should understand about boards. <laughs> do you get letters from patients? You know, like if someone's really disgruntled, do they write you letters? Absolutely. Our board got a letter just this week from a patient uh, in one of our clinics who felt that his wait time to get a blood draw was, was too long. <laughs> so we don't we don't see a lot of it, but, but we do. And most of the time, if I get a call from a patient who's concerned, they know that I'm on the hospital board, then my first reaction is to pass that patient over to either if it's a financial question, our, our director of finance or or to talk to the CEO and let him handle it. I'm not I'm not going to kind of get in the middle of that because, again, that hand, hands out thing. But uh, I'm going to pass them on. I'm representing I'm representing the patient. That's where it ends. Bye now. Obviously, you are a wealth of information because I have about four pages of notes here. Um, if someone would like a little bit more information about what it takes to be a hospital trustee or how to be a better hospital trustee, wh where where could they go? The best resource that I've, I have found is on the aha.org website. And if you scroll down right on their homepage, there's a section there called Key Relationships. And under that is a heading called Trustees and Community Leadership. It is unbelievable when you click on that link, what that opens up. Just an unbelievable number of resources. In particular, I like they, they have a great boards publication that comes out frequently and talks about issues. My Every member of my board gets Trustee Magazine, which is also put out by the American Hospital Association. Every month it talks about different issues. It sometimes has work plans for hospital boards or education plans to look at. They have a section in, in this AHA website around trustees that's on the quality curriculum for trustees. And they just uh, released it this year. It's got a whole bunch of videos on particular quality issues, and it's really excellent. We would, of course, love to have any trustees join us for WRTS. We're going to Sun Valley, Idaho. Who doesn't want to go to Sun Valley, Idaho in June? And we always have a great mix of speakers specifically geared for trustees and get time to talk to other trustees. So I think that's a, a great thing. And uh, AHA also has a leadership network. Uh, any interested trustee can, can sign up and there's a, a phone-in program where they listen to speakers several times a year and they just this week added a chat room for trustees to communicate with each other. That is a, a, a lot of fantastic information and additional resources. And we will make sure that all of the links that Bina just mentioned are on the episode page for at, at relentlesshealthvalue.com. Just go on that aha.org and and scroll down to that on that main page to trustees. And when you hit that link, it's just unbelievable what's underneath that. I will look forward to doing so later this afternoon. I thank you so much for being on the program today, Bina. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed visiting with you. A couple of important points that I jotted down. 
the four hot topics in 2014 for hospital trustee boards, population health management, transitional government, physician integration, and community benefit. And something I never knew, you can get a bead on what is going on with any given hospital, nonprofit, by looking on the IRS website because a a hospital's report on the benefits they are providing the community are located there. Also, the Western Regional Trustee Symposium, great place for trustees to be educated or for others to learn what is important to a trustee if that is part of your job description. I hope you enjoyed the interview today as much as I did. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.